But this morning we want to continue our series on Behold the Lamb, and we're just doing a couple messages as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday. And this morning we'll be talking about the Passover Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Uh, Last week we were looking at Abraham and Isaac, right, and how God provided a lamb in substitute for Isaac, and that's the same picture that Christ is. He's our substitute for us, is he not? And this week we're looking at the Passover lamb and how the Passover lamb, back in Exodus chapters 11 and 12, you can turn there in your Bibles, Exodus chapters 11 and 12, how that Passover lamb is really a picture of Christ being a substitute for us. And so it's in, it's in 1 Corinthians, actually, that Paul says, if you're wondering, well, how is Jesus the Passover lamb? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, For Christ, what? Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So if you're saying, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not unsure if Jesus is in the Old Testament, he is the Passover lamb. Everything, all the sacrifices were pointing to him. So today we're going to talk about that. What does it look like? How do we, why do we know this to be true, that Jesus is our Passover lamb? And also, why don't we continue to sacrifice lambs like they did? Why don't we have to do all the sacrificial stuff they did in the Old Testament? Why don't we celebrate a Seder service and Passover and all that? Uh, and it's because of what we're going to look at today in our text in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? Most, most people remember Paul Harvey. He was a wonderful broadcaster, a wonderful storyteller. He had a little snippet on the air that he called the rest what, of the story, right? And it was usually a, a story he'd start off that you were pretty much familiar with, but then at the end he brought up something, wow, I didn't know that. Well, several years ago, many years ago, before he passed, he told a story of Washoe. Washoe. And, and, and Washoe was a chimp. He was a chimpanzee. She was a chimpanzee, I should say. And uh, she was a chimpanzee in the research department of the University of Oklahoma for 14 years. 14 long years they studied this chimpanzees. And the researchers and the scientists, they said they were teaching Washoe to talk. And, you know, giving their evolutionary tendencies, this was exciting that they could show that this could happen, right? So they were being able to communicate with Washoe through uh, sign language. And, and it, it seemed that the chimp was communicating back to them. Uh, the, she would usually learn one word, like crayon or down or up or whatever. And then they would begin to use those words and kind of, she would mimic what she was taught. I mean, we all know animals, you know, unless you're Dr. Doolittle or something, can't talk, right? But on the other hand, some of you have pets and you swear they could talk to you, but they don't. Trust me. Um, but Washo, this, this chimpanzee, was the most celebrated laboratory animal in the history of this University of Oklahoma. Fourteen years they spent time. And she was kind of, she became kind of a, a phenom. She was like a celebrity princess chimp, <laughs> if you will. And she had it made. 
I mean, she had her own food, her own chefs. She had her own security team. She had her own people that prepared her, her stall each night so her, she could lay down. I mean, she was in heaven. I don't think she knew she was in heaven. But for a chimpanzee, she was in heaven. No other chimpanzee had it as good as Washoe. And the day came when these scientists, these researchers, felt that she was not only able to mimic what they were teaching her, but they really thought that she was able to express her own thoughts in sign language. And so they thought, this is, a, is a, this is a watershed moment. This is going to be huge. So they invited all these researchers, all the scientists, all the media from all over the world to watch the first words that Washoe would, would communicate. The first words that she would put together in a certain sentence. And the, the media gathered around the professors and the professors gathered around the scientists and they all gathered around Washoe that day with the lights and all that stuff and she put her first words together. As a matter of fact, she began to sign the same words over and over and over again. They were simply this. Let me out. Let me out. Now, you might laugh at that. That's kind of a crazy story, right? Here's this chimpanzee who understands the value of freedom. Though she has the best of the best, she had it made. She was cared for. She was living in the lap of luxury. She had all that she wanted, yet she still realized that somehow she was this prisoner. She was a slave. She was put in a cage. She was held captive, and you know what? She wanted out. Well, the Bible, this book, is not 66 stories. It's 66 books, right? But it's not 66 stories. It's one story. It's only one story. It communicates the story of how guilty sinners are set free from their sin, from their shame, from guilt, from hell. And they're, they're <clears throat> set free in only one way, the Bible tells us. And that is through the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the victorious bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was sent from heaven by God. That's what the whole Bible is all about. It boils down to that. It's not about a better life. It's not about trying harder. It's not about trying to be holier. It's not about trying to come to church more often or pray better prayers or being nicer to your neighbors. That's not what the Bible's about. All those things that I just mentioned, that's what we would summarize as religion. None of those things are wrong, but none of those things will get you closer to heaven. Not one. Do you realize that God hates religion? God hates religion. You say, well, wait a minute, why? I, I talk to people all the time sometimes, and I used to talk to them more when I was driving Uber in the mornings because I had a captive audience in the back seat. 
usually the, the, the conversation would go like this. Oh, do you drive Uber full-time? No, just part-time. Oh, you have a full-time job? Yeah, I have a full-time. What do you do? Oh, I work in Redwood City. I kind of draw it out a little more, but I had to be careful because getting close to the airport, you only had so much time. So, But usually they say, well, what do you do exactly? Finally, I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church. I pastor a church. I serve the Lord. Oh, wow. So then the conversation would either they'd put their headphones on or they would say, well, I got some questions for you. Do you mind if I ask questions? And it would be great. And they would always say, after I'd say, well, I'm a pastor of a church, they'd say, well, you must be religious. <laughs> I'd say, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, this, this man is not religious. And they'd say, what do you mean? And I'd say, well, basically, there's a big difference between religion, which is man's sinful man's feeble attempt to reach out to a holy God, and biblical Christianity. There's a big difference between being religious and being a follower of Christ. And they say, well, how so? And I'd always boil down to this, and you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. I can describe religion in one word. It's a two-letter word, D-O. Every world religion, even those who were so-called part of the Christian faith, who maybe misunderstand what they should really believe, They believe that what they do depends on how much God loves them. It's kind of like you're a little chimpanzee doing a dance, and the more dances you get, the more bananas you get. You know, you got to do a dance to get a hug from God. That's not the God of the Bible, my friends. Religion depends on what you do. Biblical Christianity, those of us who know Christ personally and follow him, we understand it's not on, depends, depending on what we do, right? But rather another word, a four-letter word, D-O-N-E. What was done on Calvary. That's where we put our faith. That's where we put our trust. And having grown up in a very religious family, Roman Catholic, every Mass every week, every Sunday or Saturday night, when they had a Saturday night, we thought that was cool. They had guitars. They introduced guitars, the folk band, you know. So we'd go Saturday night. And uh, a lot of my family liked that because they liked to drink. So they could sleep in Sunday morning if they went to Mass Sunday, Saturday night. But you'd go to Mass every week. You'd go to catechism. You probably remember on Saturdays. Every week you'd have confirmation. Or, I mean, you would go through the process of confirmation. Every week you would have communion right? You would go to confession at least maybe once a month. Remember how that worked? You'd go into the little booth. You know, our church had a, a, a door in the middle. That's where the priest went. And then there was two doors on each side and there were little rooms. And when the little light above it, it was either red or green. And when it was green, that meant the room was empty. So you could go in and you would go in. And as soon as you would kneel down, you were face to face, usually with a priest. Sometimes he was still dealing with the person on the other side in the other room. I remember as a little kid listening real hard. Pretty good insulation, so you couldn't hear what was going on. But you could hear them like this, these soft voices speaking. And you'd kneel there in anticipation, you know, and that screen would be slidden back by the priest. And you couldn't really see him, but you could hear him a lot clearer. And you could kind of see through the little holes in the plastic screen this image of a priest sitting there. And, you know, you would do the sign of the cross, and you would say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been six weeks since my last confession. And then he would say something kind of like, confess your sins, and and you would begin to tell him your sins. And I remember kneeling there, waiting for that screen to come back, thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And I mean, as blinded as I was in my own sin, I thought somehow i got to come up with something. 
Not that I was perfect, but I was blind to my own sin. So I thought, well, I'll just make some stuff up. I'll lie to the priest during confession. I mean, that's how far lost we are, right? And so I'd say, well, I was rude to this person, or I did this, or I played with matches, or I, whatever. I would just make stuff up, and then the priest would say, okay, well, well, this is your penance. You go out and you say five Hail Marys and four Our Fathers, and then you're free to go. And so you would leave, and then you would go out, and you'd kneel down, and you'd do the rosary and do your, do your prayers. And somehow you thought in your heart that this is, this is good. I'm doing what God wants me to do. It's depending on what I do. And if you missed a Sunday Mass, man, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is the coming week. God's going to get me. He's after me. See, that's what religion does. It focuses on what you do. And that's not what the God of the Bible says. The gospel is God's way of getting to man. Religion is man's way of trying to get to God. And beloved, if we would forever be lost in our sin if God, through the person of Jesus Christ, had not condescended from heaven and come down and taken on flesh lived a perfect life, and became the sacrifice that we could never be on Calvary, and then be risen on the third day. See, he came down to become like us because he knew that we could never, ever become like him. And yet, there's people all over the world, in religion after religion after religion, including Christianity, who are trying. They're trying hard to do Do, do, do more, do more. See, the gospel, the power of the gospel says, no, it's not on what you do. It doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what was done for you. It's what God has done for you through Christ. That's why every week we get up and whoever's teaching, somewhere in the message, I trust they will make a beeline for the cross. It doesn't matter what you're teaching. You could be teaching the Old Testament, New Testament, but you know you have to end up at the cross because if you don't talk about the cross, if you don't talk about the blood of Christ, if you don't talk about the sacrifice that was made on our half, you're just giving people a bunch of stuff they do, not helping them understand what was done for them. There's some here this morning who are just trying harder. You're trying to get better. You figure if you just go a little bit longer, you just maybe pray a little more, read a little more Bible somehow. Something will happen. I'm telling you, all those activities that I just mentioned, praying, reading your Bible, coming to church, all those things, they'll condemn you, they'll condemn you to hell just as quick as a vicious sin. Apart from the shed blood and the work of the cross, and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Because it's not dependent on what you do. That's why we're a gospel-centered church. We, we trust that God gave us the message of the gospel for a purpose. We're commanded to make disciples of Jesus because we understand what the gospel is. That we're saved by Christ through what he has done, not by what we do. He has forgiven us by his sacrifice. And now because he is alive, we follow him and we worship and we talk about him. We don't talk about what we do. We don't leave here and hopefully we don't go home and, and 
tell our neighbors, well, you know, you just need to pray more. You just need to read the Bible more. You need to come to church more. If that's the message that you're giving people, it's the wrong message. The message is, no, you need to trust in what? The forgiveness of Christ. You need to trust in the work of Christ and the forgiveness that he freely offers you. We don't tell people they have to try harder. Everything points back to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything we do should flow out of that, not only as a church, but as individuals. That's why when we serve the Lord, we do it with what? We do it with joy. We do it with hope. We do it with a a deep-seated passion in our hearts. Why? Because Christ was the, the sacrifice on our behalf. And guess what? He conquered the grave. He conquered sin and death. He's conquered our sin. He has conquered everything that we need to be conquered on our behalf. Why? So now we can walk in his victory. Well, how does the New Testament declare to us that Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us? To understand this, you have to understand the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You have to understand a little bit about Passover because most of us are Gentile. We're not Jewish, some may be, but most of us are, are Gentiles here. And so we don't get all that. We don't get the Passover thing. We don't get the Seder dinner. As a matter of fact, we even have people occasionally come in and have a Seder dinner and explain it all to us because we're so dense concerning that. Whereas someone of the Jewish faith, they just know that. They're taught that growing up. We don't always understand all the intricacies of the Passover. Well, Genesis tells us that God led and he took the Israelites. And what did he do? He put them in Egypt. Do you remember that? There was a famine in the land, and so in his providence, he put Joseph in the land of Egypt before they got there, so that when they got there, someone was there to care for them and provide food for them. And Joseph rose up into power, and the Israelites came into Egypt under his protection, under his guidance, and their, their direction, and, and his direction, and they actually flourished there, right? They flourished in Egypt. They began to grow, and they went from a couple hundred people to close to a million. And the Egyptians obviously became concerned because pretty soon they realized, whoa, you know, they're, they're getting too big. There's too many of these Israelis here in our, our country. And as a result of that, what did they do? They took the Israelites, the Israelites and they put them into bondage. They put them into slavery. They said, we've got to curb this growth because if they grow to so many, they're going to be able to just wipe us out and take what we have. So they made them their slaves. And in essence, they lived in slavery for 400 years. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. And the whole Egyptian economy, historians tell us, was laid on the back of the work of the Jewish people who were held captive in Egypt. And so, after 400 years, (laughs) then the Jewish people started crying out to God. It, It always amazes me in the Bible that it takes so long for them, I mean, they get that we're going through judges on Wednesday nights, and we see, you know, this cycle repeated, right? They live for the Lord, God blesses them, but then they fall back into this pagan worship stuff, and it takes them, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 18 years, and then finally they realize they've sinned. But they're no different than we are. We do the same thing over and over and over again, even though God tells us not to. We think 
that we would get it, but we don't. And God's grace comes in, and that's what happened here. They began to cry out to God, save us, redeem us. We don't want to be slaves anymore. Help us get out of here. Set us free. And God heard their prayers, the Bible says, and he raised up a deliverer named who? Moses, right? You know the story. And said to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. And Moses kind of like, uh, what, what, what? <laughs> right? I mean, he was real sure of this deal. But eventually, he took somebody with him and he went. But God told him right up front, listen, you're going to go and you're going to ask to be freed from Pharaoh. And guess what? He's not going to do it. <laughs> He's going to say, no, 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 no. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically send some plagues, send some catastrophic events their way in the land of Egypt to open their eyes. And eventually, Pharaoh's going to beg you people to get out because it's going to become so harsh for them. It's not going to be worth, worth it for them to have you there anymore. And so a lot of people don't realize that those Plagues weren't just kind of nilly, you know, plagues that, that God pulled out of the air. Each one of those plagues, there was 10 plagues in all, nine of them were basically to give a picture that God was against a certain God that they worshipped, a false God. So you remember some of the plagues, they had gnats, right? Well, guess what? They had a God, the Lord of the Flies, that they would worship, and so God cursed them with gnats. They had a, a frog god that they worshipped. So God, hey, all right, you want frogs? I'll give you frogs. And they had frogs everywhere. I mean, right there, I'd be done. I mean, can you imagine frogs in your bed? Oh, oh man. Just sickening, right? In your cupboard, and your food. They had a sun god, Ra, that they worshipped. And so God brought them darkness. The Nile turned into blood, it said. Every single one of these plagues, we don't have time to go through them all, it wasn't just a bad thing that happened. It, was, it wasn't just God kind of conjuring up something. Well, I've got I to send something bad to these people. But it was literally God saying to Egypt, and by the way, to Israel, his own people as well, that I am Lord over all. There are no other gods besides me. I am the God who reigns over all gods, including your little fly God and your frog God and your sun God. Every single one of them, all nine of them are aimed at their gods. And guess what? Later on, when the Israelites get out in the desert and God sends them on their way, guess who they're going to have to trust? They're going to have to trust this same God who communicated to them during this time, I am Lord over all. It's God's way of saying, hey, do you, do you remember what I did to that sun god? Do you remember about that frog god? Remember all those frogs I raised up on the gnat god? Remember me. I am Lord over all, not those things. Don't go back to worshiping those things. And what he was doing with each one of these plagues was this. He was not just taking, using them as a means to take Israel out of Egypt, which it did that. It accomplished that. But he was also using them as a means to get Egypt out of Israel. You know, God saves us, does he not? I mean, he saves us, what, from the world. But sometimes he needs to get the world out of us. Because it seems to linger. It seems to grab a hold of us. We just keep hanging on to everything that's temporary around us. 
And what he's saying here is, don't you remember that I am Lord over all? That's what he wants Israel to take away from all this. Don't you remember how I transformed your heart? Don't you remember how I changed your mind, your desires? Don't you remember how I gave you heaven instead of hell? Don't you remember that I sent my son to die in your place? Don't you remember who I am? So many of us, the older we grow, yeah, that was something I did as a kid at camp. I put my faith in Christ. When I used to work with young people all the time, you know, I'd have them sometimes share their testimony on a Wednesday night Bible study or something, and they'd get up and they'd talk about their time at camp and, oh, how they gave their life to the Lord around a campfire and whatever. And I'd usually, I wouldn't do it in front of everybody. I should have, maybe. But after the, the evening was over, I'd call the young person aside and say, hey, you know, that was, that was okay testimony, but, you know, camp was almost a year ago. What has Christ done for you lately? Are you putting all your hope in just what happened there? I mean, are you seeing God work in your life at all? Because I, I don't see it. <laughs> and it really was a sobering statement to them. See, it's not something that we just, oh, we make this decision and, you know, it doesn't affect us the rest of our life. We have to remember who God is. It should be affecting us how we live each and every day. And so we and the Israelites have a lot in common. But it wasn't until the 10th plague, beloved. It wasn't until the 10th plague. Each one of those plagues, all nine of them, it affected only the Egyptians. They saw the frogs all over the place. They saw this other stuff. The plague wasn't widespread to both the Egyptians and the Israelites until the 10th plague. And God says, it's going to affect all of you if you don't do what I ask you to do. And that's what we want to read this morning. So I would ask you, just stand in honor of God's word, and we'll read a couple verses out of Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 7, and then Exodus 12. Stand in honor of God's word. Exodus chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speaking, speak now in the hearing of your people, the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go, here it is, In the midst of Egypt, out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of a slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Verse 6, and there shall be great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now jump down to chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
Verse 4, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take accordingly to the number of persons, according to what each of you uh, shall eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without, look, blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall uh, keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, when they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let any of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. Your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will on all, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you'd bless this to our hearts as we study it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. How is it that we go back centuries ago, the Passover, how does that represent Jesus today? Well, we can't go through all the ways it does, but I can go through four this morning before our communion time together. First of all, the Passover lamb was, a, was to be a spotless lamb a spotless lamb, just like Jesus was. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without what? Blemish. Without blemish. So the lamb had to have no defects, no dysfunction, no disability. It had to be perfect. It couldn't have a broken tooth or a limp. It could have nothing wrong with it. This is how important this was. It had to be without blemish, without stain, without spot. It had to be perfect. As a matter of fact, this was so important to the priest that the priest would examine each sacrifice. Family would come with their lamb and they would have to have a period of time that that lamb went under scrutiny. Sometimes it took up to three days. They would look at the hooves. They would look at the fur. They would look inside their ears. They would look inside the the lamb's mouth. They wanted to make sure the lamb was going, that was going to be offered up to the Lord had no defects whatsoever, no stains, no spots, no blemish whatsoever. Well, why was this important? Why was this such a big deal? You have to understand it was because of the forgiveness. The forgiveness of the people was really dictated by the perfection of the sacrifice. The forgiveness of the people and their sins was dictated by the perfection of the sacrifice. God says, if you sacrifice this perfect, perfect spotless lamb to me, what? I am going to 
cover. I am going to um, look over. I am going to pass over your sin until the one who comes that will take it away forever. But if your lamb is not perfect, then guess what? (laughs) No deal. The sins aren't forgiven. So they wanted to get this right. If we're going to be able to deal with God, was in their mind, if we're going to worship God, if we're going to pray to God, then we have to have a perfect lamb. It's, It's that important. So they would spend a ton of time because the per- perfection of the Lamb dictated the forgiveness of their sins. Do you ever notice through the New Testament when you read through the, the Gospels, if you ever through the Gospels, it's kind of a fun read. You can read through and pretty much you read about the life of Christ, right? That's what the Gospels are all about. But it seems like there's a disproportionate amount of time in all of the Gospels given to the last three days of Jesus' life. I mean, think about it. He spent 30-some years here on earth. But what do the Gospels focus on? They focus on the last three days of Jesus' life. I mean, they don't really share a whole lot about his birth. Some of them do, but not, not a whole lot compared to everything else. Mark doesn't talk about it at all, <laughs> the birth of Christ. And we have a little bit of his teachings. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this is all he did for 30 years. You know, he, he three years, I mean, he, he went out and he, he preached and he taught for three years. And we just have a couple pages. But proportionally speaking, we have a tremendous amount of time that focuses on the last three days of Christ's life. And I don't find it a convenient truth or anything but I think it's because God is verifying the perfection and the unblemished nature of the Lamb of God, Christ, just like they did in the Old Testament. And he said that through the Pharisees. He said it through the Sadducees. He said it through all the people, people like Caiaphas, the high priest. What is he doing? He's saying over and over and over again, every single person who is investigating this Lamb of God, Jesus, who is going to be slain, what are they doing? They're looking for a flaw. They're looking for, oh, we got you. You're not so good after all. That was their their game. They were always trying to trick him. They were always trying to draw him into something that was sinful. But everyone ends up saying, everyone, including his enemies, They can't find a thing about Christ. They can't find a flaw. They can't find a fault. Even Jesus himself said, those among you who find fault with me, any of you who have anything against me, any of you who knows a sin against me, what's he say? He says, speak up now. Here I am. Let me hear it. And not a word was spoken. I mean, can you imagine if I stood before you, hey, you know what? Uh, if any of you have know of anything that I've ever done wrong, well, I want to know about it. I mean, let the line begin, right? My wife would be first in line. Yeah, let me tell you. Right? Because why? Because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And yet Jesus, even with the people who hated him, 
The people who would want to nail him to a cross, they couldn't find anything. Think about it. Pontius Pilate, what did he say? I find no fault in this man. (laughs) Judas, the one that betrayed Christ. He wanted to get rid of Jesus because Judas was more of a military might kind of a guy. And he thought, oh, he's going to go in there and take over Rome. And I'm going to be part of the well. When he realized that the Savior is going to die and that wasn't his plan, then what did he do? He betrayed Christ in, in the end of his life, before he took his life, he says, I've been, I, I, I have betrayed innocent blood. That's what Judas said. Or even the Roman centurion. You have this Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. And when everything goes dark, what does he say? Truly, this was what the Son of God proclaiming his innocence. I mean, why would the New Testament record over and over and over and over, person after person, some of them against him, some of them for him, yet all of them, what are they doing? They're declaring his innocence. They're declaring his perfection. They're declaring his sinlessness, his faultlessness. Why? Because God is showing us the Lamb of God who is perfect, who has no blemish, no spot. He wanted everybody to understand the one who's about to be sacrificed. You can know that this is the ultimate sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, Know that you were not ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. But how? How are we ransomed? How are we purchased? But with the precious blood of Christ. And then Peter says this, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, on that cross, when Christ outstretched his arms wide and, and he hung there on the cross, the one, one of the words that he said, a sentence that he said, while he was hanging there in agony, paying for the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in him, he said, Father, what? Forgive them. Forgive them. Never, ever. Not one single time did Jesus ever have to pray, Father, forgive me. (laughs) He didn't have to pray that. Why? Because there was no forgiveness needed for Christ. He was spotless. He was perfect. Because he was the Lamb of God, perfect, without spot, without blemish. God was verifying who he was. And Jesus says nobody can find fault with him because he's the spotless lamb of God. Well, secondly, it tells us that a Passover lamb was a sacrificial lamb in Exodus chapter 6 or 12, 6. Exodus 12, 6. Just like Jesus, this lamb, Passover lamb, was to be a sacrificial lamb. It says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, they know that this, they would take this little lamb, and what they would do is they would all, at the exact same time, twilight, kill their, sacrifice their lambs, their Passover lambs. You know what time Jesus died? Twilight. 
Interesting. It's amazing. We serve a God of details. He's saying, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to misunderstand this. I want you to take a lamb, and they did this for centuries, by the way. I want you to take a spotless little lamb, a year old. I mean, can you picture this? You know, you have a family. Maybe you have some kids in your family, and Passover is approaching. So you go, and you get your little lamb, little snowball, and you bring them into your house. How long does it take a little child to appreciate a pet? About four seconds, right? Three seconds. I mean, they're like, oh, this is the best. If you get them a little puppy dog, they're just a wow, or a kitty, or whatever your choice is, a salamander, or a frog, whatever. Whatever your, whatever your, whatever your pets are. But they, they think this is the best pet ever. In about 10 seconds, they fall in love with that little pet. And what God was telling them was, you got to take this little lamb and you take it into your family. And I want you to, for four days, feed this little lamb. There's a little snow, snow, snowball frolicking with the children and they're feeding it. And at night, maybe they let it in the house and it snuggles up to the kids. And from the 10th to the 14th, I want you to feed it, sleep with it, bring it in your house. It's eating at your table, everything. What happens in four days? Hey, kids, guess what? (laughs) Come here, snowball. (laughs) We got something for you. We got to sacrifice snowball. Can you imagine after four days having a pet in your own house? Hold, maybe you have had a pet in your own household after four days and maybe it passed away. Maybe it died, and you know the tragic loss of a pet. But can you imagine the parents saying, well, we got to sacrifice Snowball. I mean, you have a ride on your hands. The kids would be like, no, no, not Snowball. We can talk to Snowball. You know, Snowball talks to us. I mean, they, they probably just love little Snowball. Nope. We've been feeding. It seems almost cruel, doesn't it? I mean, who would do that? See, that's the point, though. That's the point that God is making. The point is that God says, you know, I want you to take this special little spotless lamb without blemish, and I want you to bring it into your home for four days, and it's going to be with your family, so much so that you're going to begin to love that little lamb. Why? Because when it dies, when you sacrifice that little lamb, because you've welcomed that into your family, it's going to increase the sadness and the grief that you have when that little lamb gives up its life, when it's slain for you on your behalf. This little lamb didn't do anything. Little snowball is totally innocent. It's spotless. But you know what? You're guilty. And this lamb's blood is being spilled out for you. That little lamb that you love, that little lamb that slept under your roof and ate at your table is giving up its blood for you. Lay down its life for you. See, it elevates the the grief. It elevates the sadness, the despair over your own unholiness, over your own sin. It had to happen that way. See, when we remember the cross, beloved, we're to despair of our sin. But how many of us look at the cross and just go on sinning? (laughs) 
I mean, we even put sin on the calendar. We don't feel bad over it. We don't feel broken over it. We can't get, wait to get to it, to be honest, sometimes. Something's wrong. Something is drastically wrong because we are supposed to grieve. We are supposed to mourn over that sin that would cause such a spotless creature to be slain in our behalf. We're to weep over the sacrificial lamb. And notice it had to die. They couldn't just, you know, cut the leg of the lamb and drip a little blood and do it that way. No, God says, no, it has to give up its life. Why? I mean, if the angel of the Lord that night came and saw the family on their knees praying, and that little lamb frolicking about in the, in the front yard, guess what? Death would have come upon their household. They didn't do what God asked them to do. Because it's not the contents of the blood of the lamb. It was the blood that represented the life of the lamb. See, even Christian people get this mixed up. There's a lot of Christian people that think we should worship the blood of Jesus. Jesus had the same human blood you and I have. There's no difference. None at all. It was blood. But it's what it represented. He willingly gave up his blood. He gave up what? His life. If you have a body with no blood, guess what? You have a dead body. You have to have blood in order to have life. And so if you don't take the life of the lamb, then guess what? Then it falls back on you. See, the lamb is meant... Not just to be spotless, but it has to be sacrificed. If the angel would come over their houses and see tears over the, the door, or see scripture verses written over the door, guess what? Death would have still come. Because they didn't do what God told them to do. They didn't give up that life of the lamb and post the blood over the doorpost. Because it is by the blood. It's not by any of those things. He says everything and everyone under the blood of the lamb, under Christ's blood, is safe. If you're not under the blood of the lamb, and you're sitting here this morning, guess what? You're not safe. You're condemned. You're condemned to hell forever. And the only way out of that is through putting your faith, your trust in God's gracious gift, the Savior. The Bible says, for all have sinned, all. Don't sit here and think you're any better than anybody else. Sometimes certain churches put their people in leadership on this little power kind of trip. They begin to worship individuals instead of the God that those individuals represent. Very dangerous. That's why the only difference, I always say, the only difference between anyone who's standing in this pulpit and the people who are sitting in the pew, the chair is listening, is the, the direction you're facing. That's the only difference. We're all in the same boat. We all have sinned and fall short of glory of God. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, that's why he went to the cross, to bring us to God. 
See, Passover was intended by God to be a visual aid. A visual aid that said, the, the innocent is slain. That little lamb has to be slain. Why? Because you're guilty. And over the centuries, think about it. How many millions of lambs and goats and bulls were slain? How many millions of gallons of blood flowed, poured out? I mean, it kind of sounds gross. It sounds disgusting. That's the point. That's exactly God's point. It should. Why would God do this? I mean, a lot of people say, don't focus on that. That's just, you know, don't mention the blood and all that. We don't, want, we don't want to focus on the gore. Just focus on, you know, God is love or your best life now. But I want to point out, it's not the words of Jesus that were written over the doorposts. That's not what was written there. It is the blood of Jesus. It was the blood of the Lamb. Why is he doing this over and over and over for all these years? He's getting them to have a conditional response. That's what God wants from his own people. Every year, what happens? The innocent for the guilty. The righteous for the unrighteous. That innocent lamb was slain. Why? Because the sinful people over and over and over again for centuries and centuries. So then you come into the New Testament and what's the first thing that happens? You have a, one of the last prophets, John the Baptist. He sees the Lord Jesus coming toward him and what does he say? Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They have been doing this over and over and over for centuries. Remember uh, Pavlov's dogs? Remember that? Going biology, science, whatever. What'd he do? He would ring a little bell and he'd feed these dogs. And he'd ring a little bell and he'd feed the dog. And he'd ring the bell and he'd feed the dog. He did it over and over and over and over again. And then one day he rang the bell and guess what? He didn't feed the dogs. But what happened to the dogs? They began to salivate. Because that, that bell rang, man, the food's coming. Where's the food? And he proved a point. It's, that's what a conditional response is. The Passover was God bringing the last sacrifice. I'm bringing the Lamb of God from heaven one last time through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm conditioning your response. So when you kill the lamb and you apply the blood and you kill the lamb and you apply the blood, you kill the lamb and you apply the blood, the New Testament, here's the lamb of God. What do you have to do? You have to apply the blood. I mean, those of us who are in Christ get it. We get the conditioned response. It makes sense to us. But how people missed it, I don't know, but they did. Even those who know a lot more about the Passover than we do. I pray that we won't miss it here this morning. How many of us, we hear about the blood and we know about the cross and Jesus being raised from the dead, but we look at our own lives and what do they do? 
They reflect nothing of a changed life. They reflect nothing of a transformed life. It's mere religion we're practicing. Go to church, be in church. If it's convenient, convenient, I'll make it to church. I can come. Really? You think that's what it's about? I'm just too busy to serve Jesus. Really? This Jesus who gave up his own life for you? We will never, beloved, run out of excuses. We will never run out of excuses for not serving the Lord. We will never run out of excuses for not coming to Christ. But hear me on this. We will run out of time. We will run out of time. That's why we do this every year. Think about it. In the churches all over the world, every year. What do they do? They celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday service. Why? It's to remind us. We're trying to get a conditioned response. I'm broken over my sin. The innocence of Christ is given for my guilt. The righteous Jesus for my unrighteousness. Well, the lamb is also a saving lamb, just like Jesus. A saving lamb. Exodus twelve seven. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat. First John 1 John 1.7 says, And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from what? From all sin. Complete. Revelation 5.9 says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood... You ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Speaking of Christ's sacrifice. That's why Jesus, on the night that he held the Last Supper with his disciples in Luke twenty two twenty, it says, And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out, what? For you. This is for you. Is the new covenant. In my blood. In John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in this has eternal life. See, the lamb didn't just have to die, as tragic as that was. They couldn't have just killed the lamb and stopped there and said, Okay, let's just bury Snowball. No. Something else had to take place. For salvation to come to that household, for the the firstborn in that household to be spared, it says they had to take that blood and they put it on the doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat. Why? Why why would they want to do this? Because the death angel's coming and the death angel's going to strike all the firstborn in Egypt, 12.12 says. What is the firstborn? It doesn't mean all the time those who were born first. It basically means the one who's the heir. You could be designated as a firstborn. We, as Christians, are designated as firstborns. 
We are the ones that because of Christ, we are, what? The Bible says co-heirs with Christ. We have the same privileges that Christ has. I mean, think about that one. God pours out his abundance and his riches upon us for all eternity because of that. And so he says here, for the salvation of the firstborn, you not only have to kill this little lamb, but you have to apply the blood. You have to apply the blood. Where do you apply the blood? It tells us over the doorpost, wherever you're eating. That's on the outside of the house, by the way. And if you did it on the outside of your house, guess what? Everybody's going to see it. It was meant for everybody to see it. There's a couple things here. When you apply the blood, it's for two things. One of them is personal, and another one is public. <clears throat> it's personal in the, in, the, in the way that everybody under the blood in that home is protected. The blood on your home wouldn't protect the people next door. It doesn't work that way. It was for you. It was for those in your household. When you applied the blood to the front on the doorpost and everything, then the death angel would see that and he'd say, okay, pass over that whole house and whoever's in that house is protected. You couldn't do it for grandma down the street. Well, we're just going to put blood on her. Grandma, you know, I'm sure our blood would be good enough for that. No, it wouldn't work. Or your neighbors. It was very personal. There's always... People trying to live off the holiness of other people. I see it all the time. A lot of young people. Well, you know, my, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian because my, my, my parents are Christians. My parents were even missionaries. My, my dad's a pastor. Who cares? Frankly, who cares? That doesn't make you a Christian. You could be born and raised in a Christian home and be totally lost in your sin. Why? Because that commitment to Christ is a personal commitment. You don't get to ride on the coattails of mom and dad into heaven. It doesn't work that way. And you have to realize that maybe mom and dad are under the blood of the Lamb. Maybe they are serving the Praise the Lord. But that may not be so for you. It's a very personal thing. You have to be under the blood of Christ. You have to apply it to the doorpost of your heart personally so that when the death angel comes, so when spiritual death comes to your door, it doesn't touch you. You're protected because your sin has been placed on the sacrifice of Christ. I know there's some here this morning even in the small group we have who are religious. You come to church, you know all the stuff. But you know, I really believe you know in your heart of hearts, as the Spirit reveals this to you, you are not saved. You are not saved. You are not redeemed. You are not born again. You have not been transformed by the blood of Christ. I mean, you're working hard. You're trying to do good. I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm not saying this to be judgmental. I'm saying this because I love you. We've been praying. We're praying that God, by the mercy and grace of God, that he would reveal to you personally, even today, 
That maybe you're not what you think you are. If today was your last day, your last breath, that you would not spend eternity in heaven. I mean, I don't frankly care if, if your name is on every roll of every church in the greater Bay Area. It makes no difference. If you're not under the blood of the Lamb, you're lost and you'll be lost forever. And that should break every Christian's heart. And that's why we do this day in and day out, week in and week out. Why? So, so you can hear, you can hear, you can see not what someone else is doing. We're not saying, yeah, yeah, live like this person. Brother Joe over here, follow him. No. Who do we point to? We point to Christ. Has the blood been applied to the doorpost of your heart? It's got to be personal, but it also has to be public. This was on the outside of the house. You couldn't put it on the inside of the house. It didn't work that way. It had to be on the outside of the house so everybody could see it. Can you imagine the Egyptian people? What are these crazy Israelites doing now? They're taking these lambs and they're slaughtering them. What's he doing? He's got a paintbrush. He's painting the door with the blood. How disgusting. What a bunch of wackos. They have lost their minds. They look like a bunch of idiots. What are you guys doing? Well, you know, you understand, uh, God told us the death angel is going to come and he's going to kill all the firstborn and we have to kill little Snowball and we have to put, put Snowball's blood on the outside of our house. And the Egyptians are going, what? What planet are you people from? Isn't that how the world treats us as believers? When you tell somebody the, the gospel, when you tell somebody... No, God's mandate is that we do this. God's mandate is that we meet together as the body of Christ. Well, you just don't understand. You, you're putting people in danger. You're doing... Who are we going to listen to, people? Who are we going to listen to? We have to listen to God. And we trust God. He'll protect us. I know if we all get COVID and die together, we'll praise the Lord. We're with him. I mean, it's really ridiculous. But it's not a private thing. It's a public thing. How many Christians today are saying, well, you know, my relationship with Jesus, that's a private thing. No, it's not. It's never meant to be private. It's meant to be personal, but it's meant to be public. Think of the words of Christ. You're the what? Light world. Salt, right? Go out and, and penetrate. We don't get the privilege of hiding. We, don't, we, we can't become undercover Christians. There's no such thing. How you apply this blood is by faith. That's what it says. The only reason they did this, it was just as crazy sounding to the Israelites probably than it was to the Egyptians. But they did it by faith. They thought, you know, if this doesn't work out, if nothing even happens, we're going to look like idiots. We'll look like complete fools. But you know what God said? We believe this message is from God. And you know what? We're going to, we're going to go with it. And when we say we believe that God came down in the form of Christ, he took on flesh. He was nailed to a cross. He, bored, he, he poured out his blood to cover my sin and bore the weight of the penalty and the wrath of God for me. And I am saved because I gave my life to him and because 
he was resurrected from the dead, I will be saved as well. He tells me that if I come to him and I believe in him and I surrender to him and I turn from my sin, I repent from my sin, and I believe by faith that he came for me, that I would be saved. And the world says, are you out of your minds? See, salvation and redemption of God is not logical. It is not logical. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. Now, there's logic to it, but it's not logical. I mean, can you, can you use your brain? Absolutely. But it can't be applied by logic. It has to be applied by what? Faith. It's the only way somebody can be saved. Is that you trust by faith. You make it public. I want you to put it on the doorpost outside so everybody knows you're a believer. Don't put it on the inside. It's not this little private thing you do. Can't happen that way. You make it public. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, the good news is this, beloved. The good news is this. Heaven doesn't offer you redemption. Heaven doesn't offer you redemption. It offers you a redeemer. It offers you a redeemer. In other words, your redemption is not just a piece of paper. It's what? It's a, it's a person who's alive and living. We point to the cross the sacrifice of Christ, but we know what? Sunday's coming, right? We know he's going to be raised glorious. The resurrection of our lamb is coming. See, Jesus isn't expecting you to be perfect. He's not counting on you to be perfect. What does Jesus say to us? He says, I want you to depend on me to be perfect because I am. I mean, that's good news, right? Amen? That you don't have to be perfect He's saying, depend on me to be perfect for you on your behalf. The last thing here, it's not just a sacrificial lamb, a saving lamb, uh, and a substitutionary lamb there, a sacrificial saving and a spotless lamb, excuse me. But it's also a shared lamb, a shared lamb, just like Jesus. Look, it says in, in verses 8 and 11 of Exodus 12, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it, and in this manner you shall eat it. So he says, look, you got to eat this lamb as well. This is part of the deal. And it says, here's how I want you to eat it. With your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. This is, this is the world's first fast food joint. Okay? I mean, God wanted them to get this done quickly. Why? They gotta get out of here. This was this was the, the role here. This is this is what he wanted them to do. 
Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Remember back in Genesis when we said, after Adam and Eve sinned, says the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. No doubt he probably shed a lamb. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. See, the lamb was not only killed. The lamb was not only have, we were to apply the blood, but then it says everybody ate. They shared it with each other. Do you ever think of this? Everybody who practiced this Passover, who killed the lamb, applied the blood, and ate together, when they entered the promised land, when they, when they exited Egypt and they entered the promised lamb, land, guess what? Every one of them had what? Lamb on the inside. They had all partaken of this together. I mean, isn't that an incredible picture? Because the resurrected Lamb of God lives within us, the Bible says, right? That's what Paul in Galatians 2.20 says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. See, the blood was posted on the outside, but the Lamb was on the inside. We need both. We need both. People ask, why is the resurrection so important? Because it makes all the the difference in the world. We don't have a dead God. We have one who is living. Some of you here this morning, I'll just be frank, you're you're not Christians. You're, You're flat out not saved. And I don't say that with any form of judgment in my heart at all. I'm simply telling you that Christ died on your behalf. He died for you. And you know what? He's calling you out. He's calling you out. He's saying, you know what? You're not saved. You're not under the blood of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? You can be. You can be. If you will come. If you'll turn from your sin to the Savior. If you'll just give it up, if you'll, you'll turn, if you'll believe, if you will trust his word. And stop worrying about what others will think. Stop what other people will say. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, it's time to humble yourself before God and say, God, I don't know why I believe this or how I believe this. I'm just, I know you're calling my heart. And I want to be saved. I want to be under the blood of the Lamb. I don't want to live under the burden of my sin anymore. I believe he died for me. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe that he he rose from the dead on the third day. I don't deserve any of this. But I want to receive it by faith. Because your word says it's, it's the gift of your grace to us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather here and understand what it means to be a Passover lamb. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to us. 
We thank you, Lord, that he did live uh, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life without any sin at all. Even his enemies couldn't find anything wrong, but they still hung him on a cross. And we know that was your plan. No one killed Jesus. He gave up his life willingly for us because he understood that he had to be that spotless, sacrificial lamb on our behalf. And when we turn to you, God, with remorse in our hearts over our sin, when we turn to you emptied of our own self-worth, when we turn to you and we realize there's nothing else that can be done to save my soul other than to look to the cross, to look to Christ. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Forgive me. Apply the blood of Christ to my heart. I pray that if that's what's on your heart this morning, I pray that you will surrender to the Lord, that you will cry out to God, that God will show you He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be under the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us believers, I pray that as we partake together here of the Lord's Supper now, Father, that you would speak truth to our hearts. That, Father, this is the time of an examination. If you're not a believer here this morning, then we would just encourage you to pass over this, this cup don't partake because it really doesn't mean anything to you as a non-believer. However, if you believe in Christ and you know that he saved you, then we, we encourage you to be part of this communion time together. And Father, we examine our own hearts because that's what your word tells us to do. This is a time when we look at our, our own soul. We don't look at the neighbor next to us or the person behind us or in front of us. We look at our own soul. And Lord, if there's anything that we have done then the Bible calls us to confess those sins to you because you're, you're able and ready to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've already done it through the work of Christ. And so we enter this time with reverence in our hearts and we just pray that you would lead us through this, this time of communion. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen.